I would ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 1. We read the wider context in the scripture reading. I just want to focus in now on verse 21, where the angel says to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, as we take your word in hand, we, we cry to you for insight and understanding. We pray that the name of Jesus that is often upon our lips, that comes to us in our worship and in our prayer, prayer and in our praise, that we would have a, a deeper understanding of the significance of his name. We would have a, an increased in appreciation of the mission that he came into this world to perform and that we might live in the light of the of the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of, of the love of Christ and of, the, and of the full dimensions of this great salvation that he has come to bring. So look upon us with your, with your favor. Grant us help from on high as we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we do gather this Christmas Eve morning, we continue our consideration of Matthew's account of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. In contrast to chapter 2 that we're going to look at this evening, chapter 2 that addresses aspects of the way in which Christ was responded to or his birth was reacted either for or against by wise men and, and evil kings, in chapter 1 seems to focus upon his identity. Just who is this Jesus and what did he come into this world to do? And so, we see this as a chapter that in many ways gives answer to a question that we sing in a song that's often sung in the Christmas season. Who is this? So we can help us, child of lowly Hebrew maid. Who is he? Now Jesus, Matthew's answer to this question of our Lord's identity is displayed in many ways in the opening chapter. In the genealogy that he gives us of chapter 1, we see that Matthew identifies Jesus as the son of David, who through his death and resurrection, um, I'm sorry, th- uh, that he is the king of the Jews, he is the Davidic Descendant, descendant who, after 14 generations of no Davidic king, is born, as the wise men say, king of the Jews, and now through death and resurrection, in chapter 28, he becomes lord of the universe. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. So who is this so weak and helpless? Child of lowly Hebrew maid, he's Christ the king. He is the lord who has come. He is the son of David who's given the throne of his father David, to rule and reign in the universe of God with all authority in heaven and on earth. And then, verse 23, the passage we looked at last week, we have Matthew give a summary of the birth of Jesus um, when he says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And so the summary statement of Christ's birth sets forth his identity as Emmanuel. He is God with us, with us. 
to restore the presence of God with mankind. The incarnate God of Israel, who was with us not just in his earthly pilgrimage for the 30 some odd years that he lived upon this earth, but is with us, Matthew tells us in chapter 18, wherever two or three are gathered together in his name. There he is, Emmanuel, God with us. And then in resurrection, power and glory, he commissions his church that he gathers and among whom he is present with a mission to, is to bring the gospel message to the ends of the earth, make disciples of the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And he, then he says, Lo, Emmanuel, I am with you. I am with you. God is with us even to the end of the age. As the church carries out his work in the world, the presence of Emmanuel is promised to us. So who is this so weak and helpless child of lowly Hebrew maid? He's not only the king of the nations, he's also God of Israel, present with his people. But there's one other identifying feature of this child born of Mary. And it's stated in the words of the angel in this 21st verse that we've read this morning. That identifying feature appears in the name. The angel says he is to be given. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So, as in Luke's account, in the Gospel of Luke, where we have our Lord's birth from the perspective of the mother Mary, our Lord is also named, according to the revelation given to Mary by Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. Gabriel tells Mary in Luke one thirty one, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So both the angel that spoke to Joseph and the angel that spoke to Mary unite in this one great matter that his name is to be given as Jesus. Gabriel goes on to describe the glory and the greatness of this child when he says that this child will be called great and be the son of the most high God and have the throne of his father David. But it's the revealing angel alone that actually centers in upon the name itself. The name Yehoshua in the Hebrew, Jesus in the Greek, and tells us that his name shall be called Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And bound up in the name is his identity as the Savior of his people, from all their sins. Who is this? So weak and helpless child of lowly Hebrew maid. He's not only the king of glory who ascends to the throne of his father David to reign and rule in the universe of God. He's not only Emmanuel, God with us. He's also Jesus, the Savior. He who saves his people from their sins. Our message this morning is going to revolve around uh, the realities of the name of Jesus. First, what that name means, and then secondly, um, 
how the angel expresses its significance. So we have the angel saying his name shall be called Jesus. Let's look at that for term Jesus. And then the way in which the angel expresses his mission. For it is he who will save his people from their sins. Let's begin with the name Jesus itself. In the time of Matthew writing this gospel, the name of Jesus was not an uncommon name. It was a common name. We find it in the Bible, referring to other people. There's a, something of a disputed text. I think NIV might translate it along with other modern uh, versions. The name of Barabbas in Matthew 27 and verse 16. Apparently there are Greek manuscripts who have this man Barabbas, this thief, who is known as Jesus Barabbas that the name of Jesus actually was possessed by this man Barabbas in Matthew 27, verse 16. Some Bibles actually translated Jesus Barabbas. In Luke's genealogy of our Lord, from Mary's perspective, in Luke 3, and verse 29, we read about a Jesus who is the son of Eliezer. That's in Luke 3, verse 29. In our Lord's genealogy, in his history, there is this Joshua, or this Jesus, who is the son of Eliezer. Colossians 4 and verse 11 mentions another Jesus whose name is called Justice. Jesus called Justice in Colossians 4.11. And then though it's not a canonical book, it's one of the apocryphal books, there's a book of Ecclesiastes. In some of the modern versions, Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiasticus, is actually called Jesus, the son, the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach. And that's found in the book of Ecclesiasticus, or the book of the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach, in this 50th chapter in verse 27. If you have the copy of the Apocrypha in your home, uh, you'll find, you can find it there, Ecclesiasticus 50 and verse 27 that this uh, man, Jesus, son of Sirach, says, I, Jesus, son of Sirach Eliezer of Jerusalem, have written this book. And that was written about 180 years prior to the birth of Jesus. But I just point this out to you, uh, to say that it's a, it's a common name. There are many other people named Jesus who make their appearance in Josephus' histories of the Jews and um, other writings as well. And so... It's not something special that people in that time were named Jesus. But why? Why would there be so many people that are named Jesus? It's an interesting thing that when we go through um, periods where certain television programs have captured the fascination of Americans, or we find that there are people who have come to prominence uh, in our nation as celebrities, that you have a whole host of children that end up being named for that particular person. Uh, there's going to be a whole lot of tailors coming up um, in the next generation. Uh, just judging from popular, uh, the, the popular uh, scene of uh, celebrity, uh, celebrities. Um, and so people today name children just after celebrities, or they'll name them just because they like the sound of the name, all sorts of reasons. But in the Israel of Jesus' time, names were given 
to identify with historical figures like a Joshua, who was the successor of Moses, the leader of the nation, who led them over the Jordan River into the possession of the Promised Land. Jewish parents would name their children after such people like Joshua, like Abraham, like Moses, like Joseph. And often they would be praying, as uh, if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, there's a portion where they have their Sabbath celebration and the parents sing something called the Sabbath prayer. And in the Sabbath prayer, they pray for their children. May they be like Ruth and like Esther. May they be deserving of praise. And uh, that's the prayer of the parents of, God, of, of, of children in Israel, that their children would be something like the one that they are named after. And so here we don't just find it's the parents who named the child. It wasn't up to Mary and it wasn't up to Joseph. Revelation is given that this child should be named. And he should be given a name that would be reminiscent of an illustrious figure of Old Testament history. This man Joshua. The angel reveals to them that this is the name that they're to bestow upon this child. And I think it would be odd for that to be true and not to consider something of a Joshua-Jesus connection. Maybe you think it's reading something into it. I don't think so. I don't think so because this is a passage in which Jesus is connected with multiple Old Testament figures. He's called Son of David. He's called Son of Abraham. We're going to see in subsequent chapters that he goes through and his parents go through a series of matters that almost identify him as a Moses kind of figure. Down in Egypt, protected from the wrath of the king, thus killing kids. Just like Moses was put into the bulrushes to keep himself from the wrath of Pharaoh. So Jesus and the family is sent down to Egypt to be protected from the wrath of King Herod. And out of Egypt have I called my son. Is reminiscent of the way in which God addressed his, his people Israel under Moses' leadership. And so there's many respects in which Old Testament figures are set forth not only in terms of prophetic matters but in terms of patterns that Jesus has come to fulfill. I think even something of this theme of a second Adam is probably to be seen in the temptation in the wilderness as Adam and Eve are tempted of the devil in Eden. So Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. There's also a matter of Israel's temptations in the wilderness and learning the lessons of God's grace. So there's many of these themes clearly rooted in the Old Testament. Why would the name Joshua be given to this child if there's not some kind of a connection between Joshua who led the nation of Israel into the possession of their promised inheritance, a Joshua who is the leading figure in one of the books of the Old Testament, the sixth books of the Hebrew Bi sixth book of the Hebrew Bible that we call the book of Joshua. And yet in commentaries I read and sermons I've heard about the name of Jesus, little is said about Joshua at all. Little is said about the relationship I think we ought to at least investigate. And so 
I'm here to investigate. I'm here to at least have to you maybe the idea that there is something of a connection. I like to articulate the connection, and we did it a little bit in the reading from Numbers. The fact that it's Joshua that is to be placed in leadership over the nation of Israel, that the people of Israel would not be like sheep without a shepherd. There would be a shepherd that goes in and out among them, and the people of Israel will go in and out among the flock as a result of the leadership of this shepherd, using language that Jesus himself uses of his own identity as the good shepherd. He's the door through which we enter into the sheepfold. And in that sheepfold, he leads us as Joshua led the people. And he leads us that we might go in and out and find pasture. So there clearly is that Joshua connection from Numbers 27 and from John chapter 10. But I think it's also something he said that at the Red Sea, Moses said to the people when the armies of Pharaoh are pressing in upon the people. The sea is at their back. The chariots are making their progress. Moses declares to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of Yahweh. It's interesting, it's those, that very language of fear not and stand firm that's used of Joshua when he comes to the leadership of the nation, when he comes to bring the people across the Jordan into the land of of promise. Stand firm, fear not, and see the Joshua of God. It's salvation. It's the word Yeshua. It's the Hebrew word for salvation, the very name of Joshua. God's salvation is to be seen. God's salvation will be at work for you today, is what Moses says. So the word salvation is Yeshua, which of course is the name of Moses' successor, Joshua. And the interesting thing is that that salvation that brought them to the Red Sea, that brought them into the wilderness of Sinai, that brought them to Sinai, that that never brought them into the land of promise. It ended at the plains of Moab, Moses' leadership. And it was only as the successor to Moses, Joshua, comes to the helm of the nation, becomes their shepherd, comes to lead them, that they're led into the final salvation of the people of Israel, the salvation that culminates in their arrival at the destination that God had promised to Abraham that his seed would possess this land. It's only realized through Joshua. It's only realized through Joshua's leadership. The full realization of the salvation of God comes into being. So Joshua is something of the model of what salvation would bring. And what does it bring? What actually does it bring? Well, partially, it's a salvation that brings them deliverance from the domination of a hostile empire, the Egyptian domination of the nation that put them into slavery. They're freed as they cross the Red Sea, but the full deliverance comes as they enter into the land of promise, and they conquer the Canaanites, and there's no domination from foreign powers. In fact, it comes to the end of the book of Joshua where the land has its rest. 
comes to the end of Joshua where there's a Sabbath realized through the leadership of Joshua. And so the people are saved from the domination of their enemies. They're freed from the defilement of the practices of the land. One of the things God said to them again and again is you don't do the practices of the Egyptians or the Canaanites. That you're not to bow before their gods. You're not to worship their Baals. You're to worship the Lord, Yahweh, and Him alone. And so there's freedom from, or deliverance from domination, from defilement. There's the matter of deliverance from the disgrace that sin brought about and that judgment brought about and that slavery brought about. And now the name of the Lord is honored by the Rahabs of the world as Joshua leads the nation into the land of promise. They're freed from defeat. They're freed from displacement as they didn't have a place to live. They're wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. Now they come to their portion in the land. The allotment that Joshua gives to them. So it's Joshua who delivered the people. Who rescued the people from all of these perils. Perils of domination, defilement, disgrace, displacement, defeat. And brings the people into their rest brings the people into the inheritance enjoyed by the tribes. And Joshua, I believe in this way, does prefigure the salvation that Jesus brings. It's not a partial salvation. Doesn't just bring them across the Red Sea to where they end up perishing in the wilderness as the first generation freed from Egyptian bondage experienced. A complete salvation. A realized presence in the inheritance, salvation that Jesus himself speaks about when he speaks about the judgment of the last day when the Son of Man comes with the glory of his Father and all the nations are set before him. And he divides them, the sheep from the goats, goats on his left, sheep on his right. And what does he say? He says, come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's Joshua Jesus that brings the full inheritance to the people of God. Not one of the people falls short of the inheritance. He will save his people from their sins. Not one of those people falls short of their inheritance. Not one of his people is left to remain under the dominion of sin. The dominion of darkness. The dominion of their enemies. Not one of them. Does Jesus leave defiled by the worship practices of the pagan nations? They're brought to near to God. They're brought to worship God. And Him only to serve. Not one of them is left in disgrace. Not one of them is left in defeat. Not one of them is displaced. We have a home. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. That where I am, you will be also. Joshua Jesus provides a complete salvation. Delivering his people from all of these perils and more than I haven't even thought about. And yet are genuine perils that sin brings and life in a sinful world brings. Jesus saves us from all of it. 
bringing us into the possession of the promised inheritance of God. Right into the Hebrew says, if Joshua had given them rest, and he didn't, not really. It's a partial provisional rest that Psalm 95 wouldn't have spoken of another day, and it does. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, come to faith in the only one who can lead us into the presence of God. One who has gone before us into the presence of God as the author and the completer of our faith. The one who is our pioneer, who's blazed the way for us and comes and says, now follow me. Now follow me. That's the one who gives us the true rest, the true inheritance, the true blessings of the fullness of the salvation of the living God. Well, I think that's the Joshua connection. His name shall be called Joshua. Why? This is mission. His mission is to be the Joshua who fully succeeds to do what the first Joshua did in part. But now Jesus does it in full, bringing us into the fullness of the possession of the promises of God. But now let's look then at the significance of the name. The significance of the name as it's expressed by the angel. Again, the angel says to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, Yahshua, salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I did a test case on this in the Sunday school this morning by asking the question, when we read words like this, we hear statements like this, he will save his people from their sins. What is it that we as evangelical Protestants tend to read into these words? And I think the answer, I think, is clear. It was borne out by even the things that we said. Although some of you said something more, and that was good, that salvation is a little bit bigger than this. But you did say this. That he shall save his people from their sins to most of us who are evangelical Protestants. Translated means he shall save his people from the guilt of their sins. And he will save his people from the guilt of their sins. How? By dying on the cross for them. That's the way we read those words. Now, there's lots of truth in those words. Those are, are, that is a true theological statement. But I believe if that's what the angel was saying to Joseph, Joseph wouldn't have understood a word of it. If the angel was saying to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from the guilt of sin by dying on the cross, Joseph Joseph would have said, "Um, what's that? Come again? I don't get it. What is that? Are you telling me he's come to do? He would not have understood that at all. Now the reality of the matter is to save is a broad concept that as we saw in the name of Joshua means deliverance from peril of most any and every sort. Anything that comes about in a sinful world that comprises danger we need salvation from. We need salvation desperately. We as evangelical Christians, we focus upon guilt. 
is the prime thing that sin does. Sin renders us guilty before God and exposes us to death and judgment and condemnation in hell. And so we need Jesus as our substitute to deliver us from the guilt of our sins. And indeed we do. Not denying that in the least. But generally speaking, when the scripture speaks of those realities, it uses a different set of words. It uses different language. It does not use the word soter, salvation. It does not use the word soza, the verb to save. When scripture uses the terms to save, it's talking about something often mainly different. In fact, it's even used in terms of Jesus' miracles, of people being saved from leprosy, people being saved from demonic possession, people being saved from a whole host of ills that come to us in a sinful world. Save us, Lord, we perish, is what they cried out on the Sea of Galilee. Save us from this danger that we are in. That's the language that Scripture uses. Rescue us. Now, rescue is what salvation means. Sin, many times, does mean criminality. Words for sin speak of transgression of law. It speaks of the reality of guilt. But you see, that's not all sin brings. That's not all sin does. And again, the way that Scripture uses the language, the concept is much, much broader. I said in Sunday school, I'll say it again, we live in a litigious world. We live in a culture in which law courts and judgments and verdicts are things that we read about daily in the papers. Those are the things that often lead in the headlines. We have a whole network devoted to these things called court TV. You can actually watch trials as they go on by watching court TV. And I don't think court TV would have had much success in Joseph's world because simply it was not this litigious world that our world tends to be. Sin and crime would not be the major threats. I mean, guilt and crime would not be the major threats that Joseph would be thinking about. For Joseph, sin would have been much more a matter of disgrace and dishonor than one of guilt. Not that guilt is not an issue. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying guilt's not an issue. But I'm saying salvation's bigger than the problem of our, our, of our guilt. And for Joseph, the problem that sin would bring in his world would have been that sin brings shame. Brings a bad name. Makes us to be a cast out from our culture and our society. Lots of people claim salvation from sin, that salvation from guilt, but frankly, they don't give a hang about what people think. As long as Jesus saves me, I live as I please, I'll do what I want. You go to the nearest prison, state prison, county prison, and you'll meet people in abundance. To glory, I'm saved from my guilt. The law court of heaven has exonerated me, but let them out and they'll go back to crime again. They'll say, Jesus saves, but evidently he's not saved them from their callous disregard for the heinousness and gravity of what sin is and what sin does. 
They'll trample upon others without conscience. But I'm saved. So I'm not going to hell. Don't count on it. That's how people think. But to Joseph, it was a matter of shame. To Paul, it was a matter of shame. He says, what fruit did we have in the things of which we are now ashamed? Sin brings shame. Had guilt been the issue, Joseph would have brought Mary before the law court. She would have been judges and adulterers. She would have been stoned to death. But the text actually tells us, this very text, in which Jesus' salvation is spoken of, it tells us that Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. She's been shamed enough by the fact she's bearing a child without wedlock. Doesn't have to be disclosed publicly. Doesn't have to make the papers. Doesn't have to make the six o'clock news. See, sin brings all kinds of peril. It brings shame. It brings bondage. It brings loss. It brings fear. It brings illness. It brings darkness. It brings distance and alienation. Got a bunch of these to go with this. And finally, it does bring death and it does bring judgment. But Jesus' salvation is not just from one type of peril. It's not just guilt. Nor is it salvation only by his death upon the cross. There are other saving acts of Jesus. So I read Romans chapter 5. Well, actually, the language of salvation has nothing to do with his blood, has nothing to do with his dying. That's where our justification is secured. That's where we are made right with God. But the, work, the language of salvation is being saved by his life. You see, because even once we're saved from the guilt of our sins, folks, we have the reality of living in this world with sin as an issue every single day. Who's going to save me from sin today? Who's going to save me from my own heart's propensity to walk in paths of unrighteousness, to dishonor God, to dishonor my, 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 the church, to dishonor my family, to dishonor by my actions those whom I love and would not want to dishonor. Just bring dishonor to the name of Christ. I need salvation today. And the interesting thing is the Bible uses the language of salvation to speak of a present tense reality. Paul says, that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who do not believe, but the word of the cross... Uh, I'm getting old, folks. These verses don't come as nimbly to my mind as they once did, so I'm going to read it to you. The Apostle says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's a present tense reality. The people of this world are perishing. They're going from one degree of shame to the, ne the next. One degree of loss to the next. One degree of dishonor to God, their own souls. They're hard getting hardened in their sin from one degree to the next. But then he goes on to say, in contrast to that, those who are being saved 
Saved is an ongoing reality. To those who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. So what Jesus did on the cross is not just to save us from the guilt of our sin, but his work upon the cross and his subsequent life is to liberate us from other aspects of sin's dominion, of sin's influence, of sin's power, to bring loss and trouble and danger and devastation and death. I told you I had a lot of D's. He saves us from guilt by justifying us, that is forgiving us, accounting us righteous in his sight. And that is through his death and resurrection that that great transition takes place. But that's a justification that comes to us while we are in our sins. Paul says, to him who works not, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned for righteousness. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. We were sinners, we were ungodly, and yet we're justified. But what the angel says to Joseph is that this Joshua doesn't just take us out of slavery and then leave us to perish in the wilderness. He brings us all the way to the promised land. He doesn't save us in our sins. He saves us away from our sins. You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people away from their sins. This thought more happens when our, than our justification. It's the work of God's grace in us by the power of the Holy Spirit sanctifying us and conforming us more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just salvation from guilt. It's not just salvation from judgment. It's not just salvation from hell. It's salvation from all the perils, all the hard harm, all the danger that sin does to human beings in a fallen world. When we become one of God's people in Christ, we receive the blessing of salvation from sin's power to disgrace, his power to dominate, to defile, to derange our minds into paths of insanity, saves us from being a distance from God and it reconciles us to God. Jesus our Joshua brings a salvation that is complete. Philip Bliss wrote the song, Hallelujah, What a Savior. And in the language of Hallelujah, What a Savior, the line is, full atonement, can it be? Uh, maybe full atonement was used because to say, what is, Hallelujah, What a Savior, to say full salvation, can it be? Hallelujah, What a Savior. Might have seen repetitions in his mind, but it's a good repetition. It's a good repetition to be aware that this is a full salvation. Can it be? Hallelujah! What a Savior! He comes to make His blessings known, we're told, in the words of joy to the world, as far as the curse 
is found. Christmas is a time for rejoicing, folks. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of song. It's a time of blessing God for what he has done in history in sending his son into the world. But let's not just view that in some truncated fashion where our focus is only upon parts of the story. Let's bring into the full view of our faith the wholeness and fullness of the story of God's grace in Christ. Let us see it perhaps as we've never seen it before by seeing Jesus as our Joshua. Seeing Jesus as the one who brings a full salvation from all that sin has done and all that sin can possibly do. In our Sunday school, as I brought up the matter of what we associate with salvation, Vivian very perceptively brought up the fact that salvation does have to do with the fact of not just the past guilt, not just the present power, but the future presence of sin. Not only in our souls, not only in our bodies by the resurrection, but in the world itself by the transformation or the regeneration of the universe. That Jesus will come and he will refashion this universe that labors under the curse of sin. That that curse will be removed and that the creation itself will come into the liberty of the children of God. And then Paul goes on to say in that very context of that great sense of what salvation means, not just personally, not just spiritually, not just in terms of my body and its death, but in terms of the universe itself will come into the freedom and liberty and joy of the salvation of God in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You know what Paul says? That we are saved in this hope. That salvation focuses not just upon past guilt, not just upon present impact of sin today, but of the future hope of the end of all that sin has done, that we have that hope. And in that hope, we are being saved. There's a, pres- there's a future salvation we look forward to. So whatever we know of joy today, whatever we know of the celebration of Christ's coming today, we're going to know it ever more fully and ever more joyfully when he comes again and he gathers his people together and brings in that blessed hope of a renewed creation, of a new heavens, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And our song then will be, evermore, we have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for the salvation that is in your Son. We're thankful that it's not just some partial salvation or half-hearted salvation or truncated salvation. It's salvation full and free. And we bless you for who, what you've done for us in him. We bless you for the present reality of being brought out of sin's guilt and bondage into freedom and liberty. We're thankful for the power that is at work in us, that we can work out our salvation day by day by day in fear and trembling. And we're thankful for the future hope of salvation, 
when all of the remnants of sin will be totally eradicated, when we will dwell with great joy in your presence and celebrate what great things you have done as we consider the ushering in of a new order of things by the grace and power of the salvation Christ brings. And so help us, we pray, at this season to, to live in the light, not just of what took place in the manger, but to live in the light of what took place throughout the story of Christ's saving work and to give honor to you and glory to you and praise to you in the light of the fullness of what we have been given. So we ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your people as we come to you. In Jesus' name, amen.